three, dos, uno, live or Mark Bernstein. How you doing, my friend? Good, Kane. How are you? Very good. Very good. Where have you been all my life? So, you know, well, I think uh, my Spanish might be a little better than yours, live though. <laughs> I, think, I think it's you, <laughs> Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah, yeah. My Spanish runs out at tres. Uno, yeah. dos, tres. Uh, son las dos. It's two o'clock. Oh, that's, okay. Uh, there you go. That was, yeah. uh, that's, my, that's the limit of my Spanish. Yeah. Well, it, it's been a few months. It's it's good for us to be, you know, back and doing this again. I know that uh, the world's been really busy and the world hasn't slowed down. So mm. definitely plenty to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we might have skipped last month or it might have been two months or so, but I think that the conversations that we were having last time we spoke were definitely uh, very enlightening and uh, there's been so much stuff happened since then. However, even just in the last week or two, there's been all sorts happening in the world of CX, uh, which I think is, yeah, we've got bags and bags and bags to talk about. Um, so where do you want to start? You know, uh, maybe first I can give you a quick shout out, King, because I've been following your, your newsletter and I've been following your content. And um, I mean, the quality of the content is just through the roof. The quantity of the content's through the roof. Um, so, you know, in the you know early days, it was like, you know, nice watching you and kind of seeing like little things that you had to say here and there. And now, at least for me, you've you become like a trusted source of uh, information in, in the, uh, you know, voice and customer experience world. Um, and I can see that that's the case for others. So huge congrats on what you've been doing. Wow. Thank you. That's very high praise indeed. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. We've been definitely trying to turn it up, the, turn it up a notch, should we say. And uh, yeah, doing a lot of content production, a lot of writing, a lot of repurposing of the content and stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's been uh, noticed. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we start with uh, the recent announcement of, you know, Zoom and Genesis doing uh, a strategic partnership, um, mm. you know, and, and it seems like it's part of this broader trend that the CCAS and UCAS are trying to uh, more closely integrate. And they're either trying to do so by partnerships or what actually I think we've seen more of is the um, UCAS folks trying to get into the contact center and add CCAS capabilities. Mm. So. You know, uh, on one hand, you could say, wow, Zoom totally nailed this. You know, they uh, you know, partnered with the, you know, one of the biggest and baddest in the space, Genesis, who's known for, uh, in particular, their distribution. Uh, they're on a growth tear. And, you know, they were a little bit slow to the cloud game. And then, boy, did they figure it out and, um, you know, have an awesome leading solution. You could also say, you know, well, uh, the initial, you know, intention of five nine was to do or of a, a Zoom was to do this a year ago with the five nine acquisition. And now yeah. they're partnering versus owning it. So I think it's probably, um, I think you know, it seems like they made a really good decision, both companies, and that they're in a really good spot. But very interesting to see that some folks are approaching it on the partnership side, and some folks are just trying to uh, build it themselves. Mm. It's very interesting, especially looking at Zoom, because for a lot of people who use Zoom kind of like either recreationally or for work, you wouldn't really think of Zoom naturally being a company that is trying to break into the CCAS sort of environment. You know, you'd think that, you know, video conferencing between friends and colleagues is kind of one thing. The, uni you know, uni unified communications is one thing. But uh, branching into actually end customer interactions for enterprises is, is kind of an interesting kind of proposition. And as you said, the five nine acquisition obviously was canned. I think the investors um, or the board kind of ruled it out, didn't they? Or was it the five nine board or the zoom board? I forget now, which 
Yeah, it was it was five nine that you know the CEO announced it and said we were excited to do this deal, and then the shareholders said mm, price isn't high enough. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and then you had Zoom that actually announced in I think it was February they actually announced a, a Zoom contact center solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, how that was cobbled together, I don't know because obviously the five nine acquisition didn't quite go ahead. But then obviously partnering with Genesis, who they've invested in. I mean, that was it last year. Genesis raised about five hundred million, had a, something like a twenty billion valuation or something crazy like that. Um, just about, I think it was 400 million. And that was the uh, largest investment of any private company in the contact center space ever, if I remember correctly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And Zoom was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to sort of see them align. The thing that I find interesting about all of this kind of stuff is where do you draw the line between not necessarily, not that even that it needs to be drawn. Maybe that's part of the discussion is where does a partner stop becoming a partner and start becoming competition? Yeah. Or does this not really matter? <laughs> it's so funny. The word I keep hearing, especially you know, in this space and for these type of technologies, is co-opetition. Um, Interesting. And I've always scratched my head at that a little bit, which is like, wait a minute, where are the incentives? Right. Because mm. people people follow incentives and, you know, that you either have the incentive to partner or you have the incentive to beat them. And, you know, how do you manage an organization with both of those messages top of mind saying, you know, we're going to partner and we're going to lock hands or lock arms and we're going to go to market together and win this thing. And also, if you're one on one against the deal, pummel them to the ground. Like, <laughs> seems like those two messages um, is difficult, but, you know, very practically the size and complexity um, of these businesses uh, mean that in some areas they compete and in some areas they partner. Um, and mm-hmm. it really, um, I think that, you know, companies are getting better at figuring out how to do co-opetition and they'll draw really good dividing lines, um, you know, between, you know, who you know, gets what sort of deal and how you divide up territories and, and, you know, how the economics flow through. So I think that, you know, companies are getting much better at it. Um, but I also think back to like the use cases. So, you know, when you're, uh, you know, a CCAS, why do you want to have internal UCAS? Um, I think for the, the, the UCAS folks, it's obvious. They want to get to the contact center market because it's a giant market and, you know, they have that uh, really good expertise and, uh, you know, telephony and, uh, you know, communications and they want to, you know, expand their market size. But then why does the, uh, you know, CCAS want to add on UCAS? And it seems like, the big reasons that CCAS wants to add on UCAS is one internal comms where, you know, you are having all your customer conversations. That's great. How do you then do a remote meeting with your manager? Mm. (laughs) What's the tool for that? Um, And then the second seems to be this emergence of video as something people are talking about. Now I don't know where video will go and if that's going to really take off. And I have, I'm kind of on the fence about that, but it is, you know, one of the talks of the contact center is, uh, you know, more video in customer communications. So it's just, uh, it seems like everybody has a good incentive to work together. Um, mm. and it's just about trying to make sure it doesn't get messy. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely good relationships, isn't there? I mean, if you think about the CCAS providers, what they essentially do is communication, isn't it? And that's all UCAS is really. It's just not customer facing and it sits behind a firewall and it's used internally. So it's fundamentally the same kind of stuff, but it's really interesting to look at other examples of where this stuff is playing out right now. You know, so you had Google, for example, 
partnering with all of the CCAS providers with its dialogue flow and, and contact center AI solutions. So partnering with Genesis, partnering with Avaya, partnering with UJet, partnering with, uh, I think maybe it's TalkDesk and, and a whole bunch of others it was partnering with. Um, and then it turns around and it says, well, actually now we've got this real strategic alignment with UJet and we're going to be taking UJet technology and offering our own CCAS solution as well as the the, the kind of uh, AI layers on top of it. And then there's other examples as well where you've got companies like, uh, you know, Vonage. I mean, Vonage is a great company. I've done work with Vonage very recently and, and the capabilities it has is tremendous. Acquired over AI a number of years ago and we've had the the kind of product owner and CEO of, of XCEO of over AI, Norm Fine, on the podcast talking about it. And it sounds, and I've seen it, it's actually pretty decent kit, conversational AI platform. Uh, yeah, yeah, Vonage pa- uh, power the vast majority of conversational AI platforms when it comes to their communication APIs. And so it's kind of like really interesting. I think you might have kind of nailed it in part, which is that Vonage isn't competing with any conversational AI platform when it comes to those communication APIs. So that in, in that line of business, there is no competition because those businesses need that, those capabilities and Vonage has those capabilities. I think where it gets, as you said, a bit gray is where in Google's case, I know that there was a lot of companies that were a little bit pissed off when Google announced this kind of uh, CCAS solution because it was kind of like Google had been really cajoling these CCAS players to really embrace dialogue flow and such. Mm-hmm. And, and and then it turns around and does it. My read on it is that actually those companies weren't really incentivized to, to really push dialogue flow because a lot of them actually have or are working on their own solutions like Genesis, for example, you know, but I'd love to get your thoughts on where that line is, you know. Yeah, I think uh, it's funny because if you think about uh, Google, um, you have to ask who is Google's competition, right? Like when you think of the main competitors and Google's bringing products to market and what drives their top line, who's their main competition? Um, Obviously, one line of their business is ads, and that's one of the largest lines of their business, period. But one of the second biggest lines of their business is cloud, um, cloud computing and storage. So on the cloud computing and storage side, you know, it's Amazon and Microsoft. Um, so, you know, Google wants to, um, you know, increase their market share in cloud. And one of the interesting things, you know, with uh, Amazon is that they are both a cloud provider and a retailer. So a lot of folks in retail, um, you know, are, it may be hesitant to, uh, you know, have Amazon for their, you know, cloud services because they're also a competitor. Uh, Google doesn't have that problem, which is uh, a huge advantage. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that we're seeing both Google and Microsoft, uh, in addition to their cloud computing, now offering uh, contact center solutions because, you know, they see that they can get into these contact centers that may be holding off on wanting to work with Amazon, particularly on the retail side, and then winning a big cloud compute contract, which is, you know, where the, the real money is. Um, so it's tough to say whether they're going to view, and, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of good research and um, they've announced stuff on this, but I haven't seen it. Um, it's tough to say whether they're going to, you uh, you know, it, as a razor and blades model, you know, you, have, you you sell one small thing to get in the door and then the other thing is really where you make your money. Then they call it the razor and blades model because mm. you know, the razor is not expensive, but the blades are really expensive. <laughs> um, so it's tough to say whether the razor is going to be um, the CCAS or whether the razor is going to be cloud. But I have a feeling that they're, you know, um, in part, 
or at least in a large part, introducing a lot of these CCAS capabilities and there's conversational AI capabilities in order to uh, you know, break into these organizations and ultimately win big cloud contracts. Yeah. If you if you actually look at some of Google's uh, deals that it's been signing in the last five years or so, um, you will see big cloud contracts off the back of it. And if, especially if you look in the automotive sector, if you look at uh, Volvo, for example, that run Google Assistant in the head units of the infotainment systems, Ford, exactly the same thing. Strategic partnership with Google to run Google Assistant in all of the head units. Um, what's actually happening in both cases, and if, also if you look at you know almost every other auto manufacturer, when they partner with Google for Google Assistant, there's always a multi-million dollar cloud deal on the back of it because not only are they powering Google Assistant, but Google is powering all of the infotainment system and all of the services that connect to the car and everything else beyond. And then, as you say, once they're through the door, I think that in the Ford case, it was a case of actually the way that I read it actually was that the Google Assistant thing was like a deal sweetener because the deal was actually all of Ford's infrastructure was going to move to Google Cloud. It wasn't the, the, the infotainment stuff. It was actually all of Ford's operational processing moved wow. to Google Cloud. But the announcement that came out was Google Assistant's going to be running in Ford units. So it's really interesting that you're absolutely right that the, the cloud deals are where the cash is. And some of these things may well be um, opportunistic foots in the door. So then one of the things that you know I hear a lot of talk about in the contact center space is um, that Google's presence is exploding and they're doing an awesome job and that CCAI was a really good uh, lead, you know, for them into the contact center space. Um, and the question though is, well, if they're really making their money on cloud and they're, you know, compared to the other players in the space newer, are they really going to invest? Are they really going to dig in and understand the space and provide, um, you know, a comprehensive solution? And, you know, it, I think that, you know, Google absolutely has the capabilities to deliver something, you know, amazing. You know, they're known for having the, the best engineers in the world. They have a massive workforce, tons of capital, cash on the balance sheet, um, partnerships with folks like UJet, uh, great distribution. So they can do it. And uh, that'll be really interesting to see is, you know, on Google's side, how much, uh, you know, of a priority do they treat um, their contact center investment? I think that'll dictate, um, you know, largely, you know, how competitive, you know, that offering set of offerings is. Mm, absolutely, that's a very good, that's a very good observation because you can see that when they, the way that they approach their conversational AI capabilities, the Google CC AI, it took them a long time to get insights out the door. Uh, it was in beta for quite a number of years. Dialogflow CX. It's decent, hasn't really changed an awful lot since they released it two years ago. The foundations and fundamentals are kind of almost the same. Whereas if you look at other platforms like, you know, Cognigy and Core AI and those ones who are really kind of starting to really pull away, those are changing all the time. There's new features, there's new capabilities, and they're always advancing to the point where reaching parity for other organizations is actually becoming quite difficult. And so... It's really interesting to, to think, but the thing is, is that a lot of people are still using Dialogflow. And I remember writing about this about three years ago, which is that the, the partnership that Google created got themselves into a default position, which is the position that you always want to be in. It, it, the default provider of services or the default kind of uh, solution is always going to get adopted. It's the reason why when you take out a mobile phone contract, they will automatically email you your bill instead of posting it in the post. They default you to paperless billing because it costs them more to, to send the paper out. And you just go with the default because you don't think anything of it. And so 
that's how Google's kind of got themselves or got itself when it comes to these kind of CCAI capabilities. Um, but to, to, to get to your point is how much revenue is in it for them? I don't really know, to be honest, because it doesn't actually cost that much to spin up the ILO flow and run it, in your, run it to handle calls, you know? And what's so interesting is the default, if you're saying what is the default choice for um, you know, video communication, like Zoom has done a great job at making themselves the default. Zoom yeah. is, you know, the easiest one to pick. There's awesome challengers and uh, they're innovating and folks like Ring Central are doing a really good job with Ring Central video um, as well. Uh, but Zoom has made themselves the default. And then if you look at who is, you know, the default or the, the safe and easy choice for a big enterprise and CCAS, that's Genesis. So I do think that, you know, both of those brands are, you know, um, they had the ability to come together as a powerhouse um, that, you know, that separate them from a, from a lot of folks in the pack. Um, but it'll then be interesting to see, you know, uh, what Google and, and UJet do together. It'll be interesting to see what RingCentral and Nice do together. Um, you know, th- there has not been a breakout in this field yet. And everyone is, um, doing a really good job of gobbling up market share and, you know, putting points of differentiation out there. So it'll be interesting to see when you combine all these powerhouses, you know, what partnerships end up at the top. Mm, Yeah. Do you think there'll be consolidation in that respect? Like, you know, Zoom Genesis acquiring Zoom or Zoom acquiring Genesis or Nice acquiring Ring Central, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there'll be that level of consolidation or do you think they've all got such strong businesses in their own right that they'll just kind of continue with at this kind of level? Yeah. You, you know, it, it, if you had asked me that six months ago uh, before this market turn, I would have said absolutely. Um, but they all have really strong businesses. Um, you know, uh, Genesis, I was looking at, um, they did an, like an earnings announcement uh, or something like that, um, maybe to the analyst community, because uh, I, I don't believe they're public yet. Um, they're not. And um, it was like a really strong you know, earnings profile. And uh, I wish I remembered the exact numbers, but um so, you know, these companies are really, really healthy and Zoom uh, just beat their quarterly earnings. And I, I believe it was yesterday uh, was up something like 18 percent. Um, so, you know, Zoom is doing, uh, you know, and that's up 18 uh, percent when every other company is, uh, you know, getting gobsmacked right now, especially, you know, in tech. Um, so it, it but I also think that because valuations are down in general, this is not the time for big healthy players to be getting acquisitions. Um, And they're probably planning on, you know, regrouping and looking at what they want to do in the two year time span. Um, There's definitely more IPO potential to, to be had here. Um, And then, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, do you make giant multi-billion dollar acquisitions um, when, you know, a lot of folks are talking about making sure that you have a nice little nest egg, um, you know, during an economic downturn. So, I think that at that size, the amount that it would cost to acquire one of those big players might be a little bit out of the reach of anyone in this climate of economic uncertainty. Um, But I do think all of them are going to be gobbling up smaller players left and right um, and building their portfolios. So they emerge from, uh, you know, an an economic downturn with uh, really strong technology and, and, uh, you know, uh, broader market presence. Mm-hmm. Interesting. On the concept of uh, or the notion of economic downturns, you found a, a very interesting uh, change in how no jitter is presenting itself to the world. 
Yeah, I thought it was so interesting. I was uh, going to No Jitter the other day and uh, you know, looking at you know, recent news, you know, in, in particular uh, around AI and speech. And I noticed that you know, they changed their uh, tagline. Um, if you, uh, you know, are trying to see what the preview is on their website, and it says, economic uncertainty ahead requires IT and business leaders to identify value of collaboration investments. Um, whoa. To have like the introduction, the front door of your website to the first two words to start with economic uncertainty, <laughs> seems like that's where people's heads are at right now. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been, I read a lot about um, the property market and stuff like that as a, as a little kind of side passion of mine. And I don't know what it's been like in the US, but certainly in the UK, uh, the property prices have been climbing quite steadily. Um, and it's fine when you're selling, as we were last year, not so good when you're buying, as we have just done. And so it's kind of like the property prices keep going up and keep going up. Um, and the kind of talk around that kind of property circuit is definitely that there are thinking that some kind of recession is coming and the prices may well start to decline. Um, and I suppose it's it's... I suppose it's expected, would you say, after two years worth of pandemic where the government is, I don't know, again, I don't know what's been like in the US, but in the UK, the government have been heavily funding industry. They've been funding individual people with the furlough scheme and stuff like that. And so all of that money that's been created and printed, first of all, I remember reading something in the US where they were printing more money during the pandemic than they'd ever been printed in the history of the US before it. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like all of that cash that's been injected into the economy and all of that kind like economic uncertainty of the pandemic you would kind of think that that must rock the boat a little bit it, it must um and it, it, i think you also it's funny because we almost get bored talking about supply chain right now um but you know i you know, remember that when um i think it was uh, shanghai closed down um or, or you know really went into full lockdown for covid just a couple months ago um, that, you know, Shanghai is the largest port in the world, I believe, or one of the largest ports in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, different um, analysts who were looking at the port traffic from Shanghai noted that there was a 40% decrease in port traffic from Shanghai. So what happens when, you know, you take the largest port in the world doing tons of export, getting people's products, you know, over to them in a timely manner, and you clamp it down by 40%. And, well, of course, that means that in order to get your product shipped, uh, people are going to be paying more. Uh, people are going to be paying for expedited shipping to try to get things in a certain amount of time. Um, so supply chain still has a, a pretty dramatic uh, impact on, on prices. There's no way around it. Um, so, you know, it, and then you, you look at things like, uh, you know, I believe I saw that the EU um, maybe it was about two or three weeks ago, reported the highest uh, inflation that they'd ever seen. So it's mm. not, you know, just an America problem or just a UK problem. It's like, it's a global challenge that prices are going up. Um, you know, the war in Ukraine certainly has, has not helped at all. Um, and, you know, with uh, like the EU declaring the oil embargo um, against, uh, you know, Russia. Um, so all these things I think are, are contributing to rising prices. Uh, in addition to the fact we printed trillions of dollars. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? The, um, I was talking to a guy uh, this morning, actually, who was coming to have a look at uh, our kitchen. 
And I think although we work in technology and discussing the technology market, I think is very interesting as we do. But I think it's really relevant also to look at the markets where prices tend to be fairly stable, like building materials and raw materials, like physical stuff tends to usually be pretty stable, doesn't it? You know, if you look at steel production, you know, wood, that kind of stuff, like mortar, all, all of the kind of like solid things that have got a very defined process, very established distribution and supply chain. And when you notice those prices skyrocketing because of those kind of factors, can't get, can't get enough material onto ships and getting them into the areas where they need to be in time, production levels dropping because of because of the impact of the pandemic and stuff like that, staffing shortages and whatnot. Uh, the guy was saying this morning, even though the price of wood has been pretty high over the last six months to, to 12 months, it's going up in price by 18% next week, apparently, according to a lot of the kind of trade outlets. The 18%, that's like, you know, a fifth of the price of, of timber is going up. And it just seems to be all around that kind of stuff is happening. So it's no wonder that, you know, something's gonna, something's got to give at some point. Yeah. I, I think it's inevitable. Um, it is inevitable. It's happening right now. Um, you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, raise, you can't have prices rise like this with, um, a global war where, you know, Ukraine, you know, commonly called the breadbasket of, uh, Europe, I, I believe breadbasket of Europe, um, you know, their planting season was the spring. And, mm-hmm. you know, nobody has an accurate tally of exactly how much their planting season uh, has been affected. So, you know, we're going to see food costs go up. We're going to see shortages. And, you know, that's going to come to fruition in the in Q3 this year, you know, mm-hmm. when, when typically those harvests would be happening. So there's no way we're going to see you know, prices going up like they are. And, you know, I, the, the fed in the United States, you know, is taking action to try to reduce inflation. Um, but you know, part of it is just a big part of it is global factors, you know, and, you know, when they, um, are raising interest rates here in the United States, um, that is going to make it, uh, you know, a more, put the job market in a more challenging position. So I think that, you know, where we are about to be in a spot where inflation is, uh, you know, is, is pretty high and we're going to see jobs clamping down and uh, you can't really get through those two factors without some sort of recession. And, you know, it's, you know, we, we went through the biggest bull run, I believe in us history or, or maybe since the 1920s, um, you know, over this last decade from 2008 to 2000, uh, you know, 22. So uh, it's been a good run. And, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, we're definitely, it's just due for some correction. Usually the, those cycles don't last that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose part of the impact of a lot of this uncertainty and perhaps due to things like the pandemic where things were closed down for a long period of time and we know that during that time a lot of bringing the, bringing the conversation back to, to businesses and enterprises that are kind of not just dealing with the pandemic but also trying to maintain business at the same time is that during the pandemic, obviously, we knew that a lot of businesses closed down. We knew that a lot of people were either made redundant or furloughed for long periods. A lot of businesses have had trouble recruiting staff back into the business, uh, starting to open the doors again. But then there's been this kind of like 
almost like a valve released after the pandemic where people are like, oh my God, finally we can go back out. Finally we can get on a plane. Finally we can go on holiday. Finally we can go and eat. Finally we can go and see people. And it's been like all of this release has then just pumped, obviously one is is, is uh, money into the economy, I suppose, but the other thing is huge demand on businesses. And mm-hmm. those businesses, as we've known, and, and everyone's been talking about all the last two years, has been struggling to kind of try and get back to whatever that new normal is. Um, but in trying to do that, there's obviously been a lot of mistakes, and there's a whole bunch of things we can get into, as I'm sure we will, about the impact that all of this stuff has had on customer experience, broadly speaking. And maybe the one to start with would be a Forrester report uh, of a number of US companies uh, found that 20% of brands over the last uh, 12 months have seen a decline in the quality of their customer experience, which is crazy. Considering wow. everyone's trying to improve it, 20% of brands have actually actively made it worse. Wow. Why do you think that is? It's interesting. I think there's a lot of factors going on, isn't there? One is the priority that customer experience gets within each organization. You know, I was talking to a company the other week who, even even now, the impact of the pandemic on them, they're, they're a high street retailer. They're used to having people walk into their stores and take things off the shelves and pay money at the till and walk out. All of those stores closed down, closed down in 2020. That forced a load of demand online, demand that they were not prepared for whatsoever. They didn't have the technical infrastructure, so the website kept on crashing. They didn't have the distribution infrastructure, so they couldn't get product to people. So then they ended up with a huge backlog of orders, which they had to work through. And then what they've been doing over the last six months is actually upgrading all of their technology infrastructure to be able to just manage the demand that they're now receiving whilst trying to get stock back into stores and staff back into stores. So a lot of actually what the, what's being focused on is actually how are we even just going to survive, you know, today, let alone make the customer have the best possible experience imaginable. So I think there's a lot more to it, but part of it for some industries, especially the travel industry, for example, you've got a Manchester airport, you'll be waiting five hours to get through security because they just don't have staff. They can't find staff. They can't recruit staff. It takes one month to get someone through enough training to be able to, for them to work on security. And so for me, I think a lot of it is just lack, whether whether it's lack of planning in hindsight, I don't know. We've never been through this situation before, so it's very difficult to plan for those kind of things. But I think there is some organizations that are just trying so hard to just stick around and to get things up and running and stand up services that I think what is traditionally, it's a bit like design. Design has always been seen as the icing on the cake. Customer experience, I think for those that are slightly immature or, or you know don't prioritize it, it can be seen as the icing on the cake, not the fundamental, which I believe it is the fundamental. You get the fundamentals right, it has an impact on customer experience. But I think that a lot of them are just trying to stay afloat. Um, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Kane. Um, staff, if you just have fewer people that can serve your customers, they're going to have to wait longer or they're, they're going to be more rushed or you're not going to be able to get to them um, or, you know, they're not going to do as good of a job or not going to be able to prioritize as much because they have to do the, the same amount of volume with, with uh, you know, fewer resources. So the people side is just, you know, it's just an equation. Um, then you have change. And I completely agree with what you said, which is, um, I think in the beginning, everyone had, uh, I would say maybe a high degree of patience and tolerance for 
uh, businesses. There was almost empathy for businesses. You know, wow. You know, almost. You're having, <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> you're having to re, you know, re, um, turn over your operation overnight. This is, that must be hard. Wow, you sent all your people home. You know, there was, I think, a little bit of like empathy. And now it's like, time's up. You should know how to do digital. You should know. <laughs> and think about when you go into a restaurant and, uh, you know, and they don't look like they have their ordering system down, hmm. you know. It, now you're like, what the heck? <laughs> You've had you know, two years, but you know, it used to be almost a little bit like um, a little bit quaint, a little bit charming. It's, you know, a little, Oh, well, you know, they're, you know, uh, smaller, you know, mom and pop sort of restaurants. So, you know, they'll figure it out. But now you go in and you're like, you know, I have higher expectations. So I do mm-hmm. think that the change is a, is a big piece of it as well. And then the third is I saw that uh, you reposted an article that Andrew Morehouse put out. Mm. That was super interesting about, you know, he said, uh, I think he called it the death of, of uh, live chat. Um, and that's, I think, like a symptom of a greater problem. And the, the greater problem, uh, we could talk about the death of live chat in a second, mm. but the greater problem is uh, people looking for technology silver bullets. I think companies said, you know, we have more volume, so what can we automate? And you know, the answer is that a lot of folks were kind of pushing into the next frontier of trying to automate things they previously hadn't automated, which was still not really that proven out yet. You know, think about like the first people to take the vaccine and how a lot of people were like, ah, I'm not going to be the first, I'll be the second or the third. Well, I think that, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the pandemic, everyone was the first to automate. <laughs> everyone was first. You didn't get to kind of watch a whole wave or cohort of people doing this. And now we're starting to look at the data of where did automation work and where did it not? So I do think we're going to learn from this data, figure out the right use cases for automation, the right use cases for self-service, the right use cases for uh, human um, uh, human augmented uh, or AI augmented versus AI automated. Um and I think that these learnings are about to be applied, but it's going to be another one to two years for people to look at what has worked, what has not, and implement the next generation of systems with this knowledge. Mm, definitely, definitely. I've been thinking a lot and, and talking a lot actually about the notion of hype, and specifically when it comes to these kind of AI and automation solutions and stuff like that. Um, we discussed it yesterday, we did a webinar with uh, Vonage and Artificial Solutions yesterday, and that was kind of part of that discussion, which is, there is definitely a hype going on. If you look at the Gartner hype cycle, actually, the yeah. the hype in certain solutions like you know virtual assistants and AI automation and all this kind of stuff, it's actually according to Gartner in 2021 down the hype hype curve and it's in the trough of disillusionment on its way out. Well, I don't actually think that's the case. I think that we're we're in the process now where it's receiving more hype than ever, and that's partly, I think, responsible for that kind of black box silver bullet stuff that you were talking about there, which is that I do think that there's a lot of organizations that are are not educated on this stuff. Um, Every time we do a webinar, I run a poll which says, you know, what are the challenges that that you have and why aren't you automating your customer experience now? And by far and away, the number one vote, and it was the same thing last night, is lack of education on more automation technologies and it's like so so you've got um, the marketplace with a complete lack of understanding about what this technology is how it should be applied how it can be applied how to apply it where to apply it and when as you just said and i think the perception is 
And I had this actually personally when, you know, about two years ago, a lot of companies that, that I was speaking with used to think that we have technology solutions. VUX World sells technology. And it was like always, how you know, how much is it going to cost? How, what, you know, and the questions that, that I was getting asked were like, like almost like I'm trying to sell something when, I, when I'm not. <laughs> and it's like, I don't sell technology, but the questions that I'm being asked is all about what's the outcome? How long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? So it's kind of like, it's far more complex than that. So I don't know what you think your kind of mind is in terms of where we are in this whole notion of hype and what's contributing to businesses thinking that they can just apply the silver bullet and the problems will be solved. I love that observation. And, and Kane, I was, I was picturing, you know, what, the other person, whoever was talking to in that moment, what they did arrived at the conclusion that you might've sold something. And I think that the answer is they probably quickly scanned your website and looked for different like words and phrases and then developed a pattern and said, ah, Kane is a, this kind of person. He's a, this type of vendor. This is what they sell. This is what they do. And I think that um, that speaks to the noise in the market that, you know, there's so many people with such similar messaging around technology, AI, automation, CX, improving productivity, reducing handle time, improving sales conversions, um, you know, improving agent efficiency, reducing ramp time, uh, boosting compliance. It's, you know, there's, there's everyone is saying that. Everyone is saying that. So what you do is you just kind of look at a website. You don't have time to like really look through their materials and say, oh, how does that work? Let me, let me really understand that. You just develop a pattern, go there, you know, put them in a box and say they're that kind of vendor and then move on. Mm. Um, so I do think that interestingly, you know, that phenomenon is based on the noise, which is based on, you know, marketing where, you know, a lot of folks in our space have really struggled to stand out. Um, and say something different. And then also a little bit of buyers getting lazy and I don't blame them. <laughs> I don't blame them. If everyone sounds the same, you know, it's hard to dedicate your cognitive energy to, you know, picking out the nuance uh, across messages, especially when half the things that people are marketing, they're actually going to release next year. <laughs> aren't, even, aren't even live. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely true. It's, it's weird and weird because, you know, you mentioned there that, it's not a silver bullet and things take time. And part of what Andrew actually in this article kind of alludes to is some vendors promising that there'll be a 30% reduction in call volumes in the next 30 days and all of these kind of false promises that there's no real way of justifying. But at the same time, you've got, and I don't think it's necessarily just buyers. I think that it's generally a cultural thing at this moment in time, which is that we don't have time to, to learn we don't have time to educate ourselves. We don't have time to just stop and think, take a breath, lift your head up above the parapet and just have a look around and just calm down. It always seems to me is that everyone's just like a duck paddling through the water. You know where on the surface the duck looks fine, but underneath it, it's rapidly paddling against the current. And it's like, it seems to me that everyone's kind of like that. Everyone's too busy for their own good. No one's got time to do anything. And it's just like, I don't know what it is, but partly I think that's part of the issue as well is all those things you said are definitely true. And it doesn't help that there's so many different, you know, companies saying all kinds of stuff and there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of kind of mixed messages and false promises. But at the same time, couple that with a society that doesn't even have time to go to the toilet on a morning <laughs> and it's like a recipe for disaster. I don't know how anyone gets anything done. Kana, have you ever seen the TV show Mad Men? I haven't actually. No. Oh, it's, it's I'm awesome. obviously familiar with it, but I've never actually watched it. 
Um, and I don't remember which streaming service it's on, uh, but you know, I watched Mad Men and just absolutely loved it. And it's about, for, for those who haven't heard of the show, like a New York City ad agency in the uh, 60s, I believe. Um, and uh, you know how they do business and the characters are really, really deep. Um, but one of the things that I always appreciated about that show is it kept highlighting another way to do business. And obviously some good aspects, um, you know, like uh, building relationships and uh, creativity and some bad aspects like, you know, sexism and terrible things that, you know, people were battling um, even more so in the sixties than, than we are today. Um, but one of the things that was, you know, really caught my attention is you look at that show and the, how do people have a meeting? They have a meeting that someone, you know, knocks on your door and they walk in and they sit on your couch, <laughs> you know, and in that, in that agency, they sit on your couch and you say, sup, what do you want to talk about? And they just talk and they just talk and they just kind of riff and they go back and forth. Contrast that to how meetings are done today, you know, on zoom done virtually. Um, it is a very different climate for having meetings for people mm. working together. Um, and it's a faster climate. On one hand, faster means you can exchange more topics um, and exchange more information. Uh, on the other hand, it means you can often sacrifice some of the relationship building aspect. And, you know, you're looking at your watch waiting for the next meeting, you know, rather than just letting conversations fully run their course. So I do think we need to be thinking about how we can slow down business conversations to some extent. And that's what, you know, vendors used to do when they visited, uh, you know, customers and prospects on site mm -hmm. is they realized that that was a way to slow things down and kind of take all the topics to the natural conclusion. And now with, you know, selling exclusively on zoom, you're missing, uh, or largely on zoom, you're missing the relationship aspect. And you're also missing the ability to, you know, have, uh, longer interactions that aren't so time bound. Mm, that is a very good observation. You're you're missing all of that stuff that actually does build relationships, and I think that that's probably partly where why I think that things become a lot more transactional now, don't they? Okay, do this and get this outcome by this time, and that's the level of our relationship. Whereas if you think about, you know, in the old days when you used to actually go and visit people, you used to be on site and you used to be in physical meetings. And I've read, I'm sure you've read this and, and know this from from you know prior, which is that all of the relationship building begins before the meeting. It's when you're outside, you're waiting for the other meeting to finish and you're kind of chatting in the hallway, you're asking about the kids, you're asking about the dog, you're kind of drumming up some small talk. And even just being in the physical presence of someone else is totally different. It's like Zoom is fine and video conferences are fine. But I've actually been uh, at an event and someone said hello and I haven't even recognized them. It took me like two, who is this again? And then they'll say the name. I'm thinking, oh my God, you don't even look like you look when we talk on Zoom. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you, you, there's so much that you miss out on um, when you're not in the physical space and you haven't kind of like, yeah, taken that time to slow down and have general chat. And you talked about, you know, the meeting before the meeting, you know, in, in order to you know, get to know people. Well, remember, we used to also have the meeting after the meeting. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, you'd all meet and then, you know, the vendor would leave and everyone say, so what do you think? But yeah. now what do you do? You launch a new yeah. Zoom or you launch a new. Yeah, that's not that's usually not happening because people have the next thing right there in their calendar. Um, mm. So think about all the meetings after the meeting that aren't happening. 
And one of the things that I think was really awesome about in person, and, and I, I want to continue to do this when I'm meeting with our, our customers and prospects, is there are times where you know you have constructive tension, where you're going and you're meeting and you want to accomplish an objective and you need to understand them and you know things things can get you know uh, hot, things can get hot. Mm. Then you have the chance to cool it down afterwards with a dinner or drinks or something like that and say, Hey, let's go, let's get, you know, get back to the cordial stuff. And then, you know, you're, you know, you're all, uh, you know, having a good time. Maybe you're a couple of drinks in and you bring it back up in like a lighter environment. So, you know, that's a whole thread. And now we're only getting one tiny piece of that thread. Mm. Uh, We're chopping up the other pieces strategically. Um, so I think we may be missing some of like what the holistic experience looks like to be, um, you know, doing work in person. And, you know, the, the book is not written on hybrid work yet. Like we're still figuring it out. And mm-hmm. the internet seems to indicate that the book is written and it's a remote world and that's that. Um, I'm not so convinced. I think we're going to see a little bit more hybrid. I think we're going to see a little bit more in person. Um, because I think that in the long term there are benefits to it. Mm, I definitely agree with that. Definitely, um, and the longer it, the longer it goes on, where relationships and and even with colleagues, you know, it's like you have to working remotely. I feel like you have to over communicate because you never know what's landing and what's not. Whereas if you're in person, you can look in someone's eyes, you can see whether it's been understood or not. You can kind of you you know you're building that relationship. Whereas you know virtually, yeah, you have to you have to overdo everything basically. Um, but I think that the longer it goes on, the worse it kind of gets. And I think that customers have, and even me as a customer, have developed that mentality already, which is I have an expectation that I need something done. I don't want the person who I'm speaking with at the organization to have that small talk. I want to get off the phone. I want to get my resolution sorted. I want to get off the phone. I want to get on with my life. And I think that going back to Andrew's article, that's kind of, there's bits of that kind of struggle to meet those expectations within this kind of article, which is that, you know, the, the live chat situation when live chat was initially launched and people thought that they would be able to manage like five conversations at any one time, you know, contact center, one agent manages five chats. I've had an experience with Virgin uh, media and I know for a fact, I don't know how many conversations the person was having, but it was the worst experience I've ever had because it just took me two and a half hours to get one conversation done. Uh, Andrew's analysis is looking at some of the big banks, banks like HSBC and large companies like Sky, and their average is 1.8 conversations per agent on a live chat. So that's basically what it's not even, it's a little bit better than one-to-one, a little bit better than call center, but certainly not as scalable as uh, as you might think. And in doing so and throwing everyone into the live chat, uh, the, the Andrew found that it was it's far worse actually for a whole bunch of different use cases. Even something simple like logging a complaint had really poor NPS. Complex mm. use cases like reporting fraud and reporting issues with payments and stuff like that received absolutely terrible performance. And I think the upshot, and I, I'd be interested in seeing what you kind of draw from it, but the upshot generally is that live chat is not working at all. And for most of the reasons that the businesses are trying to use it, they're the worst reasons for, for the worst use cases that you could put into it. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting, Kane. Um, and you know, just in the past couple of weeks, um, I've, uh, as a homeowner, 
uh, you know, had to do various stuff to kind of take care of the house. I, um, you know, actually got my basement got flooded and I had to reach out to a flood restoration company wow. and, uh, you know, I'm doing, uh, the live chat. That's the option that, that they had presented. And, um, you know, I, I say, Hey, I'd, I'd like to kind of get, learn more about your service. And there was probably two straight minutes went by before I got a response. So I flipped to a different tab. I'm like, I'm not going to just sit here and, and look at it. And then I got up and I walked around and you know, I got some coffee and I went to the bathroom and then I came back and they responded and I didn't respond. And they said, sorry, you didn't respond. We're ending your chat. Oh my God. So, you know, Andrew called out that the number one uh, problem um, with live chat, when people said, you know, why did you have a bad experience? Uh, detractors, the number one reason they said was premature chat ending. Mm. And I think it's really interesting how we're holding two expectations that don't match. We're saying chat is for async. That's for asynchronous communication. So people kind of be doing multiple things, you know, just shoot you a text, be watching Netflix, shoot you a text, go do something else. But we're going to close out the chat immediately if you don't answer. It's like those are not – they're not matching. Um, so I, I do think that there is a world where, you know, chat itself is just – is struggling. I think that's true. Mm. But I also think that people aren't doing it right, you know. And if you – uh, you know, you either treat it as asynchronous or you treat it like it's a live chat and you right there in the moment, get back to the person. Um, mm. But to be closing out these conversations, um, no one gets the chat ended on them automatically and is happy. Yeah, absolutely. I had that exact thing with Virgin, which was that I was trying to cancel my internet and I went through all the verification, took me absolutely ages because the person must have been managing about six different, this different conversations. And I got to the point of very, very, very nearly cancelling. And they said, would you mind switching to WhatsApp? Because it'd be better to do this on WhatsApp. And I thought, interesting. I'm just going to do this because I want to see what happens. I'm interested in trying their little omni-channel journey here. Uh -huh. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so they said, okay, is this your phone number? I said, yeah. And all of a sudden I got pinged on WhatsApp. Or oh, I might have had to text them on WhatsApp. I can't remember which way it worked. But anyway, the conversation on WhatsApp started. And I thought, this is interesting. And as soon as it, the first message that came through was, how can I help you? And it said, one, uh, whatever it was, two, three, and there was a list of nine options, right, in WhatsApp, starting me from the very beginning of the conversation. No context was carried over whatsoever. And I thought, this isn't right. This is this is terrible. I better just tell him that it's gone wrong. And I looked up and the chat had ended. <laughs> so he pounded me off to WhatsApp, started a WhatsApp conversation, and then ended the live chat. So now I'm at the beginning of WhatsApp and I've just completely defaulted on this live chat. It was the worst experience ever. Yeah, I wonder why that person you know, why that organization said it'll be better to handle it on WhatsApp. You know, the, the, obviously the optimist in me says, you know, Oh, they, there's more capabilities there to deliver a better service to you. You know, they, uh, you know, have a team that's a specialist for, you know, being able to help you with, you know, service cancellations or retention in the case that that's the best option. And the cynic in me said, they want to make it harder. So you just are less, more likely to quit. Yeah. Yeah. The cynic in me also says that this guy was just overwhelmed and wanted to just close some of his chat windows right. <laughs> because he was just personally overwhelmed. Um, <clears throat> but I think the thing is, like, I was going to cancel that contract because I was leaving the house. You know, I was sold the house. I was I'd already moved out, actually. Um, 
And so that was going to happen anyway. It's not like they were going to try and like sweeten the deal and keep me around. You know, some things is going to happen. And so from a, from a business point of view, you've got all of this influx coming in of all on all of your channels, whichever ones you choose to kind of open up. You've got all of this influx coming in, and most of what's coming in, if it's urgent enough or important enough for people to reach out to you, they need a resolution. It's not necessarily something that's going to go away. It might go away for a week, but it'll come back again. And so it's actually in everybody's interest to make sure that every channel you have serves every customer properly, which means that you need to have the right channel for the right use case, make sure that it can be fulfilled end to end. So there's no point in having signposts in here and there if it doesn't work because you're just diverting traffic around. It's like it's like a... Um, I suppose it's a bit like a, a a leak. What is it? It's not like a leaking bucket. It's like a there's there's influx coming in anyway, and those customers need serving. And so chopping them off and cutting them off and moving them around is only prolonging the issue. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is why there's those there's those th- other things we we're going to discuss. Which is that the uh, Central Ireland Irish Bank has two hour wait times on the on the phone um, because of this probably this reason they've probably closed down a bunch of other channels. Sorry, with live chats being closed because we can't manage it. Go and call the call center. So all of the volume comes through the call center. Everyone's hanging around for two hours trying to get the issue solved, and uh, it doesn't happen. So I, th- I suppose a, a long winded way of getting around to the point I suppose which I'm making is if you're going to have any channel. Make sure you can deliver the use cases that, that the customers need in that channel end to end. Yeah. Uh, Kane, it almost feels like, you know, that little, uh, you know, the ball and cup game, you know, where you have <laughs> yeah. uh, three cups and the ball is in one of them and you keep, you know, moving around the, the cups and you have to figure out which, which one it's under and you yeah. open one up and nope, it's in the other one. Um, it On the consumer side, when you're not, uh, in the right channel and you're switched to another channel and that channel is not clearly better then you feel like it's a ball and cup game if you switch yeah. to the other channel you go oh i see exactly why they did this because it's so much easier and the interface is better and there's better options and you know oh we couldn't have possibly answered the question in that other channel we need to answer in this one then it makes sense but if if that's not obvious in the first 30 seconds totally feels like a ball and cup game. Like you're just shifting around, you know, high volume. And then you start to go, well, you know, the business is taking care of themselves. They're not taking care of me. Yeah. And that's the, the, the best way to degrade, um, you know, your customer satisfaction and, you know, and lose happy customers. Definitely. And there's a good trick you can do with that ball in the cup game, which I was funny enough doing the other week with my son. He's three and uh, he doesn't really know how magic tricks work. So when you've got the ball in the cup, if you're sat at the table and your knees are under the table and you're moving the cups around, if you just drag the cup with the ball underneath it, just a little bit over the table edge, the ball will fall out on your lap. And therefore the ball doesn't exist in any cup. And that's the trick is that he'll choose every cup and there's no ball there. And I think that's what's happening with most customers on these interactions is that they're trying to guess the right channel. They're trying to find the ball under the cup. But at some point in time, the ball is being whipped out from underneath them and they're not getting served anywhere. Kane, that is that is brilliant. Let's sign off there. <laughs> that sounds good, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, mate. You too, Kane. Talk to you soon. Speak soon. Bye now.